Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 94 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. you and what do you do my name is michael league i'm a musician a producer um and uh the band leader for snarky puppy and bocante you've been a busy person well for many decades at this point i'd like to say it's it's not like it's seasonal for you it doesn't seem (laughs) yeah yeah sure i mean i think straight out of college basically i uh tried my hardest to shove snarky puppy into the the music industry um to no avail for many years but yeah so so since yeah since i was basically like 19 or 20 i've been uh slopping away in the mud was it just the sense of you knowing that you wanted to be a professional musician and i ask this because not only are you an incredible musician with an incredible band but you've done so many incredible things business-wise as well did you see yourself when you graduated from college in the mindset of I got to play or just that I need to be a part of this business? Oh, yeah. I, the business stuff was just out of necessity. You know, it was never, I, I never had a passion for the music industry. <laughs> I still don't. Now less than ever, I think. Um, but I mean, who's going to book your shows and promote your band and call radio stations and, you know, do all that stuff if not you? You know, I mean, at the beginning, at least when no one cares about you, you're, you're, you're your own best resource. So, um, yeah, it was really, it was really just strictly out of necessity that I did all that stuff. But everybody has that necessity when they graduate, especially from music. Not everybody has that fire, desire, and will to actually do it. A lot of musicians just assume, well, sit back and wait for the gigs to happen, or I'm going to try to make gigs happen. But heading into things like foundations, festivals, teaching master classes, multiple bands, your own record label, it sounds like a lot more than just necessity to me, I guess. It sounds very entrepreneurial. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think um I think I've always just been very realistic. So yeah, I'd love to just like sit around and watch Seinfeld and practice, you know, Freddie Hubbard solos and then have my favorite musicians call me to, you know, play with their bands and snarky puppy or something but it's just there's just no you can't draw a direct line from that kind of behavior in my apartment to that kind of result you know Mm -hmm. i mean um i think i just recognized as most people recognize that you can want something but if you don't take the steps to make it happen then it just simply won't happen so i thought okay i really want this badly i really want for my band and this music that we're creating to 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 actually get out into the world and and do things and I want to play music in other countries and I want to you know be a musician and and above all be a part of a thing that's creating original music you know for me that was always like the biggest allure um and what will that take okay that takes renting a van and driving around eight hours a day and not sleeping and, you know, crashing on people's floors with a sleeping bag and passing out flyers for six hours before your gig in Athens, Georgia. And, 
you know, and all of those things that come along with it. So for me, it was never like, oh yeah, I really want to hand out flyers. You know, that was never like a thing. It was just like, this needs to be done in order to accomplish our goal. Um, so that's what I did. And we did. So I know based off of some of your origin story in terms of the bass, and I'd like to focus a little bit on the instrument if we can, that you picked it up at around 17. And when I hear stories like that, I always think back to when I first picked up the instrument. A lot of times it's forced because there's a guitar player and a drummer. You just want to be in the band or someone's asking around. But I think upon reflection for many players who I've had the chance to interview over almost close to 10 years now, that they can think back to younger when that sound really impacted them. Is that the case for you? Like, When did you first notice things like bass lines or feel attracted to that? Or was it also the mother of invention or intention? I did not start playing bass because I loved bass. I started loving bass when I started playing bass. Wow. You know, I was that typical case of a guitar player in a band with three guitar players. You know, someone's got to play bass. You know, and it was a squire, a squire jazz bass that lived in the uniform closet of our school marching band. And uh, we had three guitarists in the high school jazz band and we needed a bass player. So the teacher said, like, all right, who's going to play bass? And nobody wanted to. Who can carry this home? (laughs) Yeah, basically it was like who knew the music, you know, best or whatever in that moment. And, And I was a senior and they were freshmen, the other guitar players, you know. So it was like, okay, well. You know, we all know the bass is more important than guitar. So. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I mean, that was kind of the idea. It was like, if the bass player messes up, the song is dead. If the guitar player messes up, whatever. It's creative harmony or 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 something. Yeah. They just you do know? it again and it's improv. And so, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I, 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 yeah. So, you know, they gave me this bass. I don't even think it had a case. I think I like took it home, yeah. with, walked it home with no case. Like a rope. And I started to. Between to the neck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, probably. I mean, the neck was probably so bananaed it wouldn't have mattered anyway. And and uh, and then I went home and I like started learning blues, like walking bass lines and stuff. And I just immediately fell in love with it, you know. But it was an instrument that I just didn't really notice so much before I was playing it. I think also because you know I didn't have any bass heroes, you know. I mean, Victor Wooten or something, but like. There weren't any like local bass heroes, really. You know, Gary Granger lived in my in my neighborhood, not my neighborhood, within an hour of me. And, and he, but I wasn't hip to him yet. You know, I was seventeen. I was playing Eric Clapton stuff, you know, and um, on guitar. So yeah, so that's how I kind of got into it. And then I just got really, really into it. And now looking back, I'm so glad I did it because God, everybody needs a bass player, and no one needs a guitar player. You know. <laughs> What's interesting is that you eternal demand. Yeah, but in theory, you could have played in school and continued guitar in the bands outside of school. There was that little thing in your brain that said, "This is for me." What was that journey like in terms of music? When I think about the music you play, many people will say you can't even classify the music of Snarky Pop or even the music you create on your own. And I think that's a fair assessment. You're really good at blending genres and creating new landscapes. But something's driving you back then and you're at an age where you're fairly young and fairly impressionable and your friends are listening to all sorts of stuff. And even when you're in jazz band, I know for many players, it was tough to reconcile what was happening on the street versus what was happening in class. 
What were you like stylistically? Totally. What was the music playing in your house? What was it like? Well, I grew up with classic rock above all, you know. I mean, my parents were huge classic rock fans. So Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, you know. And then more kind of like a little more adventurous bands like Steely Dan and stuff like that. And then also like a lot of R&B and funk. James Brown, Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin, you know. Those records were in the house. Um, but then my brother, who was five years older than me, was feeding me all the jazz stuff. He was feeding me, you know, you know Scandinavian music, Irish traditional music, Turkish music, Greek music, because we're, we're Greek and Irish above all, like uh, ancestrally. And, you know, exposing me to sounds from around the world, Brazil, you know, Cuba, you know, these kinds of things. So my brother was really the, the main music pusher to me, you know. Is he a musician? Um, but, but I grew up with him. Yeah, he's, well, he, he is a, a wonderful musician, but he works primarily as an ethnomusicologist at, the, at Florida State University in Tallahassee. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think he was the one that was really more like expanding my horizons. Whereas my mom and my dad's music was the stuff that I just like got into Tom Petty, you know, Steve Miller band, whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, influenced by repetition is what I like to call Yeah, call exactly. Things. Exactly. But my brother was kind of stretching the, the boundaries, you know. What's interesting about it, when you talk about your brother's musical taste in relation to your parents, you went from speaking about specific bands to regions of the world, which is sure. very unique because you can go to places like Brazil or Cuba and experience traditional music or their take on jazz, or even my favorite thing to do is just listen in general to pop music from those sure. types of regions, but different sure. eras. Very, very mm -hmm. unique and different. Like 80s pop music or popular music in Cuba was very different from the stuff I was experiencing <laughs> um, as a young man. That's curious to me. That desire to explore regions versus a band is very, mm. it's a very cool thing to do even now as an older person. <laughs> right. But I can't imagine what it'd be like to be in your teens or your early 20s and be doing that type of exploration and music. It seems like something you've continued to do is look less at a band and more at a region or type of or genre. Yeah, but I also think about, um, you know, music from the US in that way. You know, I mean, I did, a, I, I, uh, during the pandemic, I taught one semester at a conservatory in Barcelona called Liceo. And uh, just because I was at home and I wasn't traveling and I was like, oh, this will be nice, you know. And I had an ensemble that was called the Black American Music Ensemble that I started there that was devoted to the research and performance of Black American music over the last kind of 70 years. And we went region by region, which is something that even doesn't really happen much in the U.S. That like oh. you just think like, oh, yeah, R&B artists. But what? An R&B artist from Detroit or an R&B artist from Texas? That's like, or New Orleans. I mean, these are like very different ways of approaching R&B. And I wanted them to experience that. So, we started, of course, with Texas. So, they had to cover, they had to, you know, fully transcribe and learn all these songs by everyone from Erica Badu to Roy Hargrove to Beyonce you know, the, you know, I mean, like, you know, really um, diverse black artists from the United States, but they all came from Texas because I wanted them to really see, start to kind of like feel the difference between Chicago and Texas and New York, you know, which were those, and we did Philly, we did four, four, four different repertoires. Um, and it was just fascinating. And it was fascinating for me too, because I was like, oh, Shaka Khan, I didn't know she was from Chicago. But then all of a sudden you start like noticing like, oh, wow, there's this similarity between Shaka and Sam Cooke or 
whatever, you know, and you realize, um, you know, that, that these things are connected that you can't really separate regions, you know, you, you can't separate the region from the music. You can't separate the community and the culture and the people of a certain place from the music that they create. They're inherently intertwined. Well, it's interesting that you didn't mention Los Angeles too. I wanted, yeah, we, we wanted to do LA, but I felt like LA was more of like a music culture. Sorry. Is that my, you hearing my cat? That's my Don't cat. Worry, it's great. We're good. You hearing that? Not really, and it's, it's good fine. background noise. Okay, cool. I don't mind cats. Okay. Cats are great. <laughs> ambient okay, music, cool. ambient sounds um, in this is great. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say I can kick him out or invite him in or whatever. So, um, <laughs> he really knows when to meow. I'm hearing it in the mic. So, uh, yeah, for me, LA seemed more like a situation of like, yes, there are, I mean, there are so many incredible musicians that are born and raised in LA, but I felt like with a place like New Orleans or Texas or Philly, there's less of a situation where people are moving there and becoming influential artists. It's more like it's very homegrown, you know, whereas with LA, although there are, uh, you know, I mean, Shuggy Otis, Patrice Russian, you know, I mean, LA, LA artists, um, most of the artists that we think of that are from LA, you know, in, in quotation marks, marks um, really aren't from there. They moved there. You know, so I was thinking like it might be cool to go to places that feel a little more, a little more rooted in 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 the region rather than like a destination kind of city. You know, do you, do you think the same way about New York? I do, yeah, I do. But we did in this ensemble, the students did music from New York largely because Bernard Wright, who was my mentor, um, grew up there, and he hipped me to like the really like the Jamaica Queens scene and this sure. thing um and i i really wanted to emphasize the idea of lineage um to these students especially because they grew up with like you know 10,000 miles away from the music that they're studying so i wanted them to really feel like Weldon Irvine taught Don Blackman and Don Blackman taught Bernard Wright and Bernard Wright taught me and i'm teaching you and you will teach others whether you you're a teacher or not you're going to share who you are with others and i wanted them to feel connected to the lineage um and actually 10 of those students came to dallas to record uh to volunteer during the recording sessions for empire central the new snarky puppy album and um and they got to meet bernard and got to see bernard play in person they got to speak with him and i think for them it was like kind of a big moment where one of these people that they had studied and they recognized how much influence you know, he had on the world of music and so many great musicians, you know, that suddenly it wasn't just a name in a book or a video on YouTube, but it's like a human being whose hand they're shaking and 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 whose conversation they're sharing, you know, and so that was a, a, a very special moment. Yeah, and Bernard was a huge influence and straight, when did he pass? He passed, I mean, it must be recently. Yeah, I mean, we recorded in March or early April, early April. And he passed, I think in mid May or something. I mean, it was like a month or two after the recording session is crazy, really crazy. Talk a little bit about how you met him for those who don't know. I mean, he really is considered an American pioneer, funk, jazz, mm. keyboard in general. I mean, singer, well worth knowing if you don't know who he is. 
but you had a deep connection to him and a long connection to him. How did that come about? Sure, yeah. For those who don't know Bernard Wright, exactly. He was a keyboard player, multi-instrumentalist, singer, composer, who grew up in Jamaica, Queens with Lenny White and Marcus Miller as his kind of running partners as teenagers and as younger than teenagers, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, exactly. And 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 Bernard made his first record with GRP that had Dennis Chambers and Lenny and and Roy Haynes and Buster Williams and and Marcus when he was, I think, 14. He was he was 14 years old when he recorded it. And it came out when he was 15 or something, called Nard, which I still would recommend to everyone hearing this podcast. I mean, if if not for Nard for the incredible bass playing that Marcus <laughs> is laying down it's as like an 18-year-old kid, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's nuts. So, um, so exactly. So Bernard married a, a woman, um, Anita, uh, from Texas. And when I left college at the University of North Texas and started gigging um, in a church, I was gigging in church in lots of different churches, but this was like the first black church that I started gigging in, um, in Texas. Bernard was one of the keyboard players there, uh, Riverwalk Fellowship of praise. And not only was Bernard the keyboard player, but the the rest of the band, the first Sunday that I played there, the band was Roy Hargrove's RH Factor. It was Jason J.T. Thomas <laughs> on drums, Todd Parzno on guitar, Keith Anderson on sax, Bernard Wright on keyboards, Bobby Sparks on keyboards. And the music director was uh, a guy named Philip Lassiter, who at that time was a, just a son of a pastor from Oklahoma um, without really a name in the music industry. But then he went on to do like all the you know, horn arranging for all of gospel's biggest stars. And then he became the head of Prince's NPG horn section. Um, you know, the 14 piece horn section that Prince used, I think until his death. Um, so it was actually kind of like an all-star band, you know, and it, but I was just kind of thrown into it. Um, and after the first service, that's when I kind of joined this Dallas, the black Dallas music community, you know, largely the gospel, R&B, funk, soul thing. Um, and Bernard took me to a jam session. It was a Wednesday. Sorry, it wasn't a Sunday. It was a Wednesday. And Bernard took me to a jam session. And um, after the church service, that R.C. Williams, who's the music director for Erica Badu, was running. And that's where I met everybody on the scene, you know. Um, and so, the church hired me. Philip hired me and I played there for years, three years or something, two years, three years. And the whole time, Nard was there on stage. Bernard was there. And um, and then, you know, he didn't have a car. So, I would drive him to church. I'd pick him up, drive him 40 minutes to church. After church, we'd go to a club and watch a band play or he'd have a gig and I'd take him there or we'd go to a jam session or something. And, and then I'd drive him home. So, I, you know, that was like three days a week like that. Plus, Monday nights when he played. I would normally pick him up and drive him to that gig or someone in his band would. And then other nights we'd have gigs. So I was spending three to six days a week with him for a solid year and a half and then a little less time weekly for another year maybe. So it really was this kind of like mentorship in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, I mean, I just, yeah. I mean, you know, I played with him in so many different contexts in a church in like a, you know, sketchy club in a jazz <laughs> setting at a wedding, whatever, you know? And I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was crazy. It was wild. I learned so much from him. I mean, anything that I do that's cool musically, if I do anything cool, that's, you know, musically, it's, it's, it's basically something I stole from Bernard. He passed young. He was 58-ish, I think, when he passed. 
Yeah. Yeah. He, he was, was young. It, by it, a car. We tell the story and I want to frame it. It's very it because, sudden. Yeah. It's a crazy thing because yeah, it was a very sudden story. I mean, it sounds like he could be in his seventies or eighties, but he was a young guy. He was. Yeah. I mean, because he started so young. I mean, he was, yeah, a, a major label recording artist, you know, two years before he could get a learner's permit to drive. You know, I mean, it's crazy. He was so young. And his death was so sudden, you know, um, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I was talked to him, I think the day before or something, you know, um, uh, and, and he's just playing so incredibly on the record Empire Central on the last, you know, this, the, the new Snarky Puppy record. It's like, you can see the band is just like on fire watching him play, you know, it was so electric just cause he's just, he's a, he's a deep musician and there's no hype. There's no like compensating swag. It's not like a thing that if you don't see him, you don't, you know, it's not the same experience. It's like the music that he, that he made was so deep. It just spoke for itself, you know, and it elevated everyone else on stage every time. And that to me is like the, the real Jedi skill, you know? What drew you Michael to the church, that type of music how does it play a role in your life today? Is the religion an important part of your life or is it more your ability to add music to that world? Well, I mean, I think whether, whether people recognize it or not, black church music from the United States, you know, is, um, is an integral part of all of our listening diets. Even if you don't listen to gospel music, Every black artist, black American artist that you've basically ever listened to in your life had their first formative musical experiences in a church. So it's kind of like this elephant in the room, you know, that it's like no one really talks about it. But I mean, whether, yeah, whether you're Miles Davis or Kanye West or Billie Holiday or Patrice Russian or whoever, like the, the influence of that musical culture is in them. And therefore is in our ears if we've listened to their music. Um, so it's a it's just it's just kind of like this very silent power, you know, that's kind of permeating <laughs> through all of this music, you know. Even if the music that a black artist makes is rebellious in a certain sense and is like, you know, going against a kind of religious principle, there's going to inevitably be something about African-American gospel music or church music that that is in that rebellion against church music. You know what I mean? It's just so intertwined. Um, and then consequently, the music that like someone like me, like a white musician makes, which like my primarily, primary music influences are black American music influences. So, it's getting distilled one level, one very, one very significant level. But it's there in my music too, in a very, very distilled way. You know, and then if you're from Japan and you're playing soul, it's there in an even more distilled way, maybe, you know. Um, and that's very, very interesting. It's a very interesting idea. Um, but yeah, when I was in high school, I was playing guitar at Vienna First Baptist, uh, First Baptist of Vienna in Virginia. And that was an all black church. And I was playing guitar, but I wasn't engaging in the music in the way that I should have. I basically was just taking electric guitar solos, rock solos over gospel music, you know. I wasn't really learning the harmony and getting in there. And it wasn't really until I started playing at that church at Riverwalk that I started really getting in there, you know, and, and then pretty soon within a year, like basically 90% of my gigs were in churches, 
you know. Um, and that was a blast, you know, playing at a church like the Potter's House in Dallas, which is, I think, maybe the largest black American church in the world. You know, I mean, the sanctuary seats 10,000 people, you know, with a celebrity pastor, T.D. Jakes and all this kind of stuff. And, and, um, and that was a very different experience from playing in other churches where I played in some churches that were like tiny, you know, 40, 50 people per service and like a B3 I had to bring my own bass amp because there was no bass amp, you know, that kind of thing. B3 and a drum set and boom, you know. Um, and the last church that I played in, in, in the Dallas area was called um, St. John Baptist Church. A really, really special, wonderful Black Baptist Church um, in Kimball, um, Texas, that like, had a great like a big choir and you know i mean but it wasn't like a production like some of the other churches it wasn't like this kind of like show it was it felt felt like a tiny church but just with more people you know and um and the spirit at that church was so strong i had the most emotional reactions that i've ever had maybe to music definitely church music but maybe music in general in that church you know the band was great you know the choir was great. The congregation was great, but it was, it was something more than that. It wasn't like, it was just, there was this very strong feeling of community and really an aspiration to connect that I really dug and tapped into and, and, and emotionally connected to. And that's what I bring with me. I think as a musician from that, I don't bring any of the stuff about, you know, a person who lived halfway across the world and died 2000 years ago, like that stuff that's not connected to me in that, uh, you know, I mean, I know I recognize I was interacting with the music in a different way, probably from everybody in the church, but I was feeling something, but I didn't, I don't necessarily associate it with that story. You know, masculinity. I guess I, mean, I feel a, the same thing. Yeah. I'm going to ask this as a very, maybe it's a naive question. Did you feel welcome <laughs> in that environment? And then also I'd be curious about how others might have thought of you not being a black person in that environment? Like, is it a welcoming environment? Is it one of those things where people are always worried about cultural appropriation and how we use things? What was your take on both how you felt being there and how accepted you are? I mean, I can only speak for my experiences. And in Dallas, I can say like just completely unilaterally, I, was, I never felt ever, ever, ever felt unwelcome playing, playing music. In, in the black community in Dallas, never. There were definitely moments where I would walk in and take out a bass and people would look at me with kind of like side eye, like really, you know, especially when I took out a four string fender, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> <laughs> in, in the church, like you you see very few four strings. I, now you see more, but but before like a four string bass in a, in a black Baptist church just was like, these things did not ever go together. Um, and especially like a fender with flat wound strings, you know, it's like the exact opposite <laughs> from the gospel bass sound of the nineties and the two in the early two thousands. Um, so I definitely got some like skeptical looks, but no, never felt unwelcome. No one ever made me feel like you don't have a right to play this music. It's not yours. Um, I, th I think, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I can't speak. I can't really speak concretely about about what other people were feeling because I only know what I was feeling. But I, I, I never felt that way. And also, I think it's just like anything else. It's like 
everyone learns music at a certain time in their life. You know, um, like I'm white. We could say that the music of my culture in the US is like Nirvana or Soundgarden or something, which okay. actually is coming from a black musical tradition, rock and roll. But we could say that that is my music, suburban white guy. Um, but I had to learn that at a certain point. It's not like I was just born with Nirvana gushing through my veins. I mean, they didn't exist when I was born anyway. You know, so I think it just comes down to like, are you treating the music and the culture that created the music with respect? If I come in and I play my white rock crap in during a like a, you know, Walter Hawkins song in a black church, that's disrespectful to the music and to the community. Right. You know, I'm not making an effort. But also it's like I live here, I live in Catalonia, you know, in northeastern Spain. So it's very important that I learn to speak Spanish and it's very important that I learn to speak Catalan. And it's very important that I don't require that everyone around me who lives here change the way they are for me, you know? And I think it's the same with music. It's like, you just be respectful and adaptive and aware. And generally that gets um, rewarded with with kindness and appreciation, not um, banishment, you know? So I didn't know that you're in Spain right now. Is that where you're living? Is mm -hmm. that permanent or is it just a moment yeah. in time for you? No, no, no. I moved here two years ago. What's it been like? Uh, a lot more relaxed than Brooklyn. That's <laughs> really. <laughs> I, in, I, yeah, I, mean, I was in Brooklyn eleven years, and you know, uh, you know, now I live in a village with five hundred people. So I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm an hour from the city, from Barcelona, but it's where I live is like so peaceful. It's the most peaceful place I've ever been in. Yeah, but there's still life. I mean, it's you know, it's not dead, but it's it's peaceful and wonderful, and the food's great and cheap. You know, like. It's affordable to live well here, which is fantastic. I have a studio in my house, so artists from around the world can come here to record. I can make records in my underwear. I mean, that's really nice, you know. I mean, in New York, I had a studio too, but I mean, the amount we were paying for per month to have it among the three of us was just like, you know, outrageous, just untenable, you know. But I love New York. I love it. I didn't move because I didn't like it. You know, I moved because I I, I wanted this for this period of my life you know why that area in particular was it a tough or long decision to to narrow it down to that location no it was always here because it, like i have a good friend who has a, a home in this village and i actually composed a snarky puppy record here called silva this friend of mine who is a man one of the managers of the metropole orchestra with whom we made silva she gave me the keys to her house and said like don't write this record in New York. It's too chaotic. Write this record in this little Catalan village. And so I went, this was eight years ago and, um, and wrote the record and I just fell in love with the town. So I just kept visiting, kept visiting, kept visiting, kept visiting. And then when I decided to move, I was like, that's where I'm going, you know? Wow. It's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about the new album, Empire Central. Recorded over eight nights to use TV lingo live in front of a studio audience. <laughs> Correct. So what does it take to get an album ready to be done over eight nights in front of a live studio audience? Because it's easy to hear that and think, oh, the band just recorded an album. But it feels to me that you need to have a lot of material to be good enough and ready enough as a collective to get up and do this for eight nights. Or is that not the case? Is it an improv-based experience? What's the experience like to get there? Well, this is the, let me see. 
tell your friends, ground up, both family dinners, Silva, we like it here. So this is the seventh time that we've done this format, used this format to make a record. Um, and I would say that every time we did it, the experience was different. So when you say, what does it take to create this experience? I mean, I would say, well, there's seven different ways you can create this experience that I know of. <laughs> um, this time around, it was maybe 10 days, seven to 10 days of rehearsal in a rehearsal studio, like all day rehearsals, um, working on two songs a day, one song before lunch, one song after lunch, and then at night learning the two songs for the next day. Starting Are like the ideas ready before those 10 days? Some ideas were, were, yes, were ready. Some were not. I mean, we were rehearsing for eight days. So maybe on day four, someone would come in and say, I just finished a song, you know, on day six, someone else, I just finished a song. So we'd plug them in for day seven, day eight, whatever. Um, so people were writing songs. It was really funny because we're rehearsing two brand new songs a day that no one had heard before the rehearsals because everybody wrote at the last minute, of course, because it's Snarky Puppy and we always do that, even though we try not to, it just always happens. So <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, everyone's like cramming, learning these songs. We rehearse from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., you know, these two new songs. And then everyone goes back to the hotel and starts to learn the two songs for the next day, but also continues working on the song that they're writing. You know, so it was intense, but it's always intense. It's like, I, I, I almost, I'm just like tired of saying it's intense because it's just every record we make is intense. It's just always going to be that way. But everybody keeps their wits together and works super hard. And then, you know, we went in and spent eight nights recording those songs. And of course, night one didn't sound as good as night six, but that's the process, you know. And the cool thing is that while you're recording on those first couple nights, you have an audience there. So you have to bring it. You know, you can't phone it in until it starts to feel good. It's like you really have to put on a performance for people and try your best. And the live audience makes you play very differently. Are you giving them only the new music? Are you giving it to them in the order in which we hear it on the album? It sounds to me like you're performing the whole album every night and then deciding which take. Or are you doing overdubs after? Walk me through how you bring it so together. Have, yeah, so it was eight nights, two sets per night with different audiences. Uh, about six to seven songs per set. So we weren't even playing the entire repertoire each night, you know, and we'd play six songs in the first set, six songs in the second set. And we still had four more that we didn't play that we'd play the next night, but, and then cut four that we had played the previous night. And, you know, so in the end over 16 sets, I would say each song probably got played about seven times, six or seven times. So we just played our two sets a night made sure each song got six or seven runs. And then at the end, I sat down and listened to everything, chose my favorite takes of each song, and then edited and mixed them. There's no overdubbing. There's no like manipulation of stuff. There's muting of open microphones that are not being used. And there's like, you know, subtle things that are being done in the editing process to make the thing sound cleaner and better. But yeah, I mean, that's not, we're not like auto tuning stuff and, and stacking you know, horn parts. And no, it's not like I was used to crack up at like all these live quote unquote gospel records, you know, that I would be like, it would say like oh, my, my favorite, one of my favorite bass players, may he rest in peace, Joel Smith. Um, it would say like Walter Hawkins live in San Diego. And it would say drums, Joel Smith, bass, Joel Smith, you know, 
<laughs> I would be like, how could Joel Smith play bass and drums live at a gig? And what he would do is he would be the drummer on the live gig and they'd have another bass player playing direct. And then they'd just delete all of that bass player's parts. And then Joel Smith would replay the bass lines because he was just obviously the most grooving bass player in the world for that stuff. So, um, no, it's not like that. It's a real live album, yes. And who are the players who show up and or get invited in this group slash music collective? How do you know who's going to be there and make those decisions? It's it's actually not. It's okay. fixed. There, okay. I mean, in this case, we had a few special guests, but their performances are going to be on like the extended version of the record that we release later, like a bonus kind of version. Everyone who's on this record is a member of the band, a full-time member of the band. I mean, full-time doesn't mean that you play every gig. Um, but like we have three guitar players who are all quote unquote full time. They alternate gigs. Sometimes we'll have two on the same gig. We have, you know, four keyboard players. It's the same, um, three percussionists, three drummers, you know? So this 19, this core of 19 people is the, um, is the band, you know, and they're the ones on the record. Yeah. Tell me a bit about what you're doing as a bass player to bring it together because you will just alluded to the different types of not just instruments, but how many types of people would play the same instrument. There's one bass player, you, how do you think about the instrument these days? How do you think about preparing for moments like that or just being ready in general? Are you playing the bass every day? Actually, I'm not really the only bass player in Snarky Puppy because, you know, Bobby Sparks or Justin right. Stanton or Sean Martin or Bill Lawrence or, you know, Chris Bullock on bass clarinet or, you know, I mean, okay. any of these people could be playing a bass line instead of me or in addition to me. Right. Um, but yeah, electric bass, I am the only one. Um, mm. uh, I mean, yeah, these days, I mean, the bass to me is like my home, my comfort zone, you know, my, my, my cozy space. Um, I, Definitely, if I have time to practice, I don't practice bass. You know, I'm practicing other instruments because I need to get those up to par, you know, much more than I need to get bass up to par. Um, so, I, I tend to kind of manage my time in that way. But um, I think as time goes on for me, bass, it's like becoming more about texture and um, feel, you know, that now I'm thinking about it like a personality, like if I'm recording or something, I'm really thinking about like the the texture of the bass and whether a Hofner or a J with rounds or, you know, a double, whatever, like what's the best sound? It's almost like the bass line is like the last thing I'm thinking about, I, the notes or the rhythms. It's like the last thing. It's almost more like the attitude and the sound are the things that are um, are most on my mind these days when I'm playing. Are you thinking about it, though, in relation to, and this is only because the conversations I have with so many different types of players, being the glue that connects the drums to the music or percussion to the music, more of a lead instrument. And I wonder if you're alluding to that more because of this idea of texture and what type of instrument. How do you see it? Do you see it more as just an instrument within it or the glue that binds idea? I think it really just depends on what the context is. Is I think the song tells you everything. I mean, I, I couldn't give it like a concrete answer that that I would agree with in every case. You know, I mean, I think in a certain song the bass is is the main melodic element, in another song the bass is a kick drum. You know, so I, it's there's too wide, broad of a spectrum to define it so concretely. I think 
And I, in general, you know, my rule is, you know, serve the song. So whatever the song tells you to do bass wise, that's what you do. In 2020, you released a solo album, So Many Me, which I really enjoyed and actually was listening to it again in preparation for this conversation, realized that I should go back to it more than I have in the past couple of years. I can imagine recording solo album being very liberating in a world where Snarky Puppy is not just a band Mm -hmm. that gets a lot of attention from Grammys to the fact that there's close to 20 members at any given time. You're, You're really going in a very different direction when somebody like you decides to do a solo album. Can you talk about that aspect? We talked about regions and influences and types of genres of music, but now I'd be curious about you as an individual musician when you make a choice to go solo, what that's like in a world where it seems to me like there's a comfort level in much bigger ensembles as you're recording and doing your work. Granted, there's Ocante and and Fork and things like that as well, but I'd be curious about the mindset of a solo record for you, what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, it was COVID and and I, I had wanted to make a solo record for many years and COVID was just the first moment, the pandemic, the confinement really was the first moment in which it seemed possible or practical because everything else got canceled. I mean, it's very easy to put off your own stuff, to procrastinate your own things. It's very difficult to procrastinate other people's things because you get external pressure, but you know, no one is was putting external pressure on me to do my own record, you know? <laughs> so everything stopped and I thought, all right, now's the time I'm gonna write this and do it. Um, and it was also really, it was because I had always wanted to do it, but it was also to challenge myself to really be alone. Cause I feel like maybe, you know, more so than musical talent, I feel like my, my, my primary skill is knowing who to hire for what, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I have a very good sense of like seeing possibilities in advance and imagining a certain person on a certain song or in a certain band and it being like a very interesting decision. And, um, and I wanted to, to deprive myself of that for the solo record and say like, yes, you could hire a million percussionists to play on this record that are way better than you, but you're going to do it, you know, to myself, you know? Um, and that was great. It was just so fun to like not have a safety net and to just have to believe that I could do it and to um, push myself to do it. And I learned a lot about my musicianship or lack thereof during the process. And, um, but in the end also I felt like I made, something that I really wanted to make and that I believed in lyrically and musically. And um, I just wanted to create a sound that I hadn't heard so much before. Well, tell me about, you used the word, what I learned. I I would want to know what surprised you musically about yourself. Was it an instrument? Was it the way songs were coming out? It surprised me that so much of the lyrics, so many of the lyrics were dark. You know, that surprised me because I tend to be a very positive person. So I guess all the negativity has to go somewhere, right? Um, So I guess it was just squirreled away in some nether region in my brain. And um, COVID's a good time for it to come out. Definitely. So, So it did. Another thing that surprised me was just how different it is singing a lead vocal versus backing vocals, you know, because I've been singing backing vocals my whole life and that's very natural to me and but really delivering like a lead vocal, it was like very, very different. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to round two because I, I feel like I learned a lot and, I'm, and I wanna, wanna see if I actually learned a lot. And then um, I think number three maybe was just 
about my time, how it changes depending on what instrument I play. My time gets better or worse. I rush on certain instruments. I drag on other instruments. I mean, it was really uh, like a heavy thing to really have to carry all of it. Because, you know, as a bass player, you spend your whole life basically learning how to play with a drummer well. That's like the main skill you're developing in most genres of music. And in this case, it was like, well, I'm that drummer. So, you know, I needed to create a solid foundation and that was really challenging. We spoke earlier about the fact that you've got this label, Ground Up Music, which there's also a festival for now, which also there's a component of a foundation. Can you let people who are listening to this understand what the vision is here? Is it to keep adding groups, bands, individuals, the <laughs> label? Is it, you know, that festival becoming an annual event in Florida now? How do you see this all coming together in a world where it feels, at least to me as a fan and someone who appreciates the music, that Snarky Puppy still has a lot of journey ahead of it in terms of what it can do? Again, great success. Four Grammys is nothing to sneeze at. It's a tough thing for any artist to get to how do you think about it and now in particular not i didn't know that you were living in spain how that impacts all of these things that people want to have happen and see happening and it seems like you went from hustle and bustle of brooklyn to a more peaceful more serene quiet area yeah well being in a quiet area actually has made me much more productive you know because now i don't have to spend three hours a day on the subway (laughs) Or, you know, 40 minutes walking with my laundry, you know, to a laundromat or something. You know, I mean, it actually made me a lot more productive. I mean, I get way more done daily here than I did in New York. Um, Obviously, there isn't the same music community. That's really the main drawback. But also the kind of work that I'm doing now, I don't need to be able to go and see three great gigs a night. You know, I mean, I'm doing mostly production work. It's intensive. You know, people come for a week, two weeks, three weeks. They're here every day we're like in a record, you know, it's more like that or I'm writing with somebody or something like that. So it's, it's great. I mean, the goal of the label to answer that question, um, it's, I mean, none of our goals with the label or the festival or Snarky Puppy or Bocante, it's never been more, you know, more artists, more ticket sales, more records. It's never that it's always just like better. That's always the goal is let's just, do everything better. Everything that we're doing now, let's do it better. Every artist that we have, let's treat them better. Let's, you know, if we do add artists, let's make sure that those artists are bringing something new and fresh and amazing to the label or the festival. You know, I mean, I think we've made it clear that the the, the brand, the ground up kind of brand is really centered around creating um, and making available art with meaning and substance to an audience that is looking for exactly that. That's kind of the idea. It's a niche industry. We're very aware of that. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to make the, you know, the Forbes or the Fort, we're not <laughs> trying to become a, for, a Fortune 500 company or something. You know what I mean? That's not our objective. I was about to say Forbes. I was going to say Forbes 500, and that tells you how completely ignorant I am about about running a a successful successful Uh, company. My last thought that I'd be curious about, considering that this is for notrebel.com, and everybody who talks about you or thinks about Snarky Puppy just loves the base. 
being somebody who started playing at 17 in 2004, yeah. according to this in 2022, the band again, we, we go on about the successes you've had. You've done great, Michael. Great job. Like double thank thumbs you, up from everybody you. here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you. curious how you see the instrument though, the sound of the instrument, the evolution of it. And the reason I'm asking this is I live in Montreal and mm. maybe it was COVID. I don't know what it was, but when I went to the Jazz Fest in Montreal, which is a big deal globally, not just in the city, I felt like I really saw the change of the instrument whether it was seeing people like Pino Palladino or Ron Carter or thinking hmm. about some of the newer bands and what happened. Miles Mosley was up here as well. So many great players. I was able to just almost move back. And I think it's by this selection also of this. It's not really a jazz fest. It's a love of music hmm. festival is what it is. Hmm. It's a great fest. I felt that the instrument really is changing and that the genres and how things are playing are changing as well. Totally. Yeah. Everything's changing. I mean, and changing quickly because if you invent something on Friday, on Saturday, the whole world is influenced by it. Whereas previously you invented something in January and in, you know, a year later when the record has finally come out and people have bought it and listened to it a bunch, then things start to change slowly, you know, but now that change is exponential because of social media. So, um, and just accessibility to music, how easy it is. Um, I definitely see the instrument changing and, and, and more so the way that people play the instrument and relate to the instrument is changing. You know, feel things, style things, tone things. Um, and I think that's awesome. You know, I mean, it should. God, what, what, what shouldn't change? You know what I mean? It's, it's great that it is. It's also unique in that the electric bass is still a pretty new instrument in the system of a band and music, which also I think is, it gives us this, this weird moment where, yeah, I feel even when I see the application of pedals and I'm thinking about my conversation with Miles Mosley and watching him play and just how people are doing things with more than four strings, <laughs> size, right? Seeing how scaled back bass sizes is impacting sound as well. Mm. It just, it just feels like there's something different happening here, almost because it's a newer instrument in a changing landscape. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Well, yeah. I mean, if there's less tradition, it's much harder to be confined by that tradition, right? So, I mean, new things tend to evolve and change very, very quickly. Um, and yeah, the bass is, what, 71 years old, right? So, um, I mean, it's fresh, it's very fresh and it was changing from the very beginning, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's first three decades were the fifties, the sixties and the seventies when like, I mean, maybe one of the most dramatic, you know, periods of change in music history, you know? So yeah, I love it. I love it. You know, I, a bass for me is really, it's like a state of mind. It's not even an instrument. You can play bass on most instruments. <laughs> you know, um, love and, and I, 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 I do really love that. I mean, anything with a low register, you know, you can play bass. So I, I, I think that, uh, more than anything as bass players, it's like, it's about everything that we play has to have some kind of attitude and personality and character and, and feel and sound, you know, it's not just about playing the right notes in the right places. That's great. So snarky puppy's got a new album, empire central, let us know, one, where people can best connect to that if they want to 
get into it and also what else is happening in your world, not just in this moment, but in the coming months, because this will probably run early October-ish is what I'm thinking. So I'm curious just for the download because of how busy you are, what else is happening besides a massive new album, which is important? Um, in my life personally as a musician, you mean, or in Snarky Bubby world? or you, you decide. This is your moment to let people know how to explore. Ah, yeah. Well, so yes, Empire Central is coming out on September 30th. It's 16 new songs with videos. Um, that's exciting. Obviously, we're going to go on tour a lot, you know, um, to support that record as Snarky Puppy. We're going to do the Pacific, South America, Europe, US, Canada, Mexico, um, you know, Japan, Australia. I guess I already said the Pacific. Um, so we're going to do a bunch of that um, with Snarky Puppy. Apart from that, um, Bo Conte is releasing a new album that we recorded here um, at my place last year. That's coming out next year. I'm really excited about that record. Super fun and really interesting from a bass perspective because there's like a lot of gimbri, which is the Moroccan oh, cool. bass, like being doubled by electric bass and stuff, which is a very cool sound that I enjoyed a lot um, during that recording process. Uh, then I have a duo with Bill Lawrence, who's one of the piano players in Snarky Puppy, keyboard players in Snarky Puppy, where I'm playing mostly oud, Turkish oud, but also some fretless acoustic guitar bass. So we made a record of um, all like a live, basically more or less live duo album um, that's very kind of intimate and, and very cool, like kind of winter record that'll be coming out in winter at the end of this year, or the beginning of next year, um, with all original songs that we wrote for the duo. And then production-wise, I'm doing the, producing the next record for Kinga Glick, wonderful bass player from Poland. She's coming here in a week and a half to kind of finish the songwriting. That's also going to have Casey Benjamin from Robert Glasper's band, Robert Sput Seawright from Ghost Notes, Snarky Puppy, Kendrick Lamar, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Nick Semrad from Corey Henry's band playing keys. Um, that's going to be a very, very fun project. Um, I just finished a record for Vary Joshri Venugopal, who's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful singer and flutist from, um, flautist, flutist from Bangalore, from South India. Really excited about that record. That also has Victor Wooten as a guest for wow. all, all the bass and, and Bela Flack and Hamilton Giolanda and others. Really wonderful, wonderful musicians. Um, uh, and then, yeah, next week I'm doing a record for, oh, sorry, I shouldn't say next week, should I? Um, I'm doing a record for Harold Lopez Nusa, wonderful Cuban piano player. Um, and then next year, some kind of a, a couple bigger records that are still uh, not allowed to be spoken about that are more surprises that I'm really, really excited about. And in January, I'm going to do a record in Matanzas in Cuba with the two kind of biggest bands in the history of rumba cubana, which are Los Muñequitos de Matanzas and Afrocuba de Matanzas. They're groups that have been around since the 50s and they've never, ever done anything together. They're kind of like friendly rivals in the world of, of rumba. And um, for the first time ever, uh, they're going to make a record together that I'm going to produce, which I'm really, really excited about. So I'm going to spend all of January in Cuba doing that. I mean, more and more, that's kind of what I'm enjoying is going to other places and, and producing records with artists there that are looking for something different, but they haven't done before. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what, what it is. Right now, the festival's still going strong in Miami Beach, Florida, Ground Up Music Festival. Next edition in February, some incredible artists playing. Um, and the label's going strong and just trying not to screw anything up, really. That's the, 
the daily goal and I fail daily, but you know, hopefully not in a big way. Well, good news is on the output, people probably just see a mass amount of great art and music. So I, I really, I can't thank you enough for your time, Michael. It's such a treat to speak to you and connect and just such a big fan of all the stuff you're doing. And a new snarky puppy album sounds like a great reason to corner you for an hour and talk about the low end of things. So thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.